that one is definitely up there on my favorites list, not quite at the top, but the first time I heard it, I think it was actually here, maybe when I was 13 or 14, and it's been one of my favorites ever since then. Uh, what was it? Benjamin Franklin, in one of the first Continental Congresses, he would say, at the time of everybody was arguing, pickering with each other, and things just weren't moving along smoothly, and he said, uh, the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? And we look throughout history and we see indeed the Holy Spirit did work. The Holy Spirit protected the lives of those who God wanted to use and he moved mightily. God sets up kings and God tears down kings and it's because of the Holy Spirit, because of the grace of God that our country is here today. <clears throat> so, we're going to go ahead and start. If you would, turn over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter number 16. I'm going to ask a, an ancient question today. Some, have, some questions have existed in men's minds for centuries and even millennia. Those questions would include tree falls to the ground in a forest and no one's there to hear it. Does it make a sound? Uh, what lies beyond the land that I live in? Uh, what happens after I die? What shape is the earth? How did the world come into existence? And why am I here? And such like. <clears throat> Although we can't, you know, science answers the question if the tree falls to the ground and you know, it, it does make a sound. And exploration can tell us what lies beyond the land that we live in, but Science and exploration can only answer questions to a certain extent. And beyond that, we require faith. Um, and one of the most important questions, honestly, the most important question that we could ever ask in the world um, is going to be here in our text today. And that question ultimately does require faith. And it determines your eternal destiny and your worldview while you live. This question has existed for centuries. And, of course, we'll be able to read it in a second as Jesus asks, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am, more importantly? Um, the question of who Jesus is must be determined in every individual's heart. Um, Jesus is something independent of what we believe that he is, but uh, what he is is only effectual in our lives so much as we believe on him and count that in faith. So the human must, mind must determine in faith what Jesus is, and if he is more than just a man, then the question, who is Jesus, only tells us who he is in person. If we're going to know him beyond that, then we have other questions we have to ask. We ask, who is Jesus? We know who he is in person. To the lost, who is he? To the man, to whom is Jesus? To the explorer, where is Jesus? To the historian, when is Jesus? To the philosopher, why is Jesus? And to the scientist, how is Jesus? And ultimately, if he's more than just a man, then we ask the question, okay, what, what exactly is Jesus? Let's go in our text today, Matthew chapter number 16 and verse number 13. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say, Thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's go ahead and pray once more for the sermon. Lord, we thank you today once more. We don't pray just as a, another token opportunity to do it, like it's part of our culture, Lord, but we do understand the need we have for your Holy Spirit, and we ask for your blessing upon this night. We thank you for your presence here. Thank you that you're working among us, Lord, and thank you for your, your body power and what you've done in our lives so far to bring us to this point. We pray that we leave today having learned from your scripture. You promised that it won't return void. May today be for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> we start by asking the question, who exactly is Jesus? A lot of times the Romans and You'd see this person's rising up, this very prominent and famous Jew, and they ask, who, who is this guy? And the 
the Pharisees and the people in the temple when Jesus was 12, they realized this is more than just an ordinary boy. There's something special about him. Who exactly is he? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the Bible says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Luke 1, 31 through 33, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. First thing we see about who Jesus is, is that he is the Savior. That's what his name means, it is Jesus. In Hebrew, that's Joshua. It's the same name, Joshua, Jesus, Jehovah saves. He was born to be the Savior of his people and also of us today, um, of the Jews and also of the Gentiles. That's what he was born for, born to be the Savior. And we, the first thing that probably comes from our minds when we ask, who is Jesus? We're either going to answer probably he's the Son of God or he's the Savior. That's the first thing that we would think of. But beyond just being the Savior, he is, according to Luke 1, 31, he is great. He is the son of the highest. He is the king. So one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule and he's going to reign upon the earth. Yet Jesus even today sits at the right hand of the father upon a throne because he is the king. He sits upon the throne of his father David. See, Jesus isn't just the savior and then passed away. He is a ruler and he's great. and He's something mighty and he's something wonderful. Isaiah 9, 6 even says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. See, Jesus, he has many, many names, many different attributes. And if we were to say over Jesus tonight, we can say he is definitely a wonderful Jesus. He is a counselor, Jesus, the one that we go to when we, we need advice. We can go to his word. He is the mighty God. Jesus is not a weak Jesus. He is not someone who has no power or no authority. He is a very strong Jesus. He is the mighty king. He is the everlasting Father, and he is the Prince of Peace. We could almost... Kind of infer from that, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the opposite of peace would be war and would be conflict. The name Satan itself means contention or an adversary. See, Satan would be the one who wants conflict, who wants divisiveness, who wants to stir things up into difficulty. A lot of times the world will accuse Christianity of being in some way violent or of some way hateful, but that is not what our Jesus is. Our Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he is a God of love. Although he will confront sin, he is the God of love, and he is the Prince of Peace. And despite what the world's accusations may be of what Jesus is, the Bible's claims of him are that he is peaceful, and that he is loving, and that he is just, and that he is the mighty king. And the only reason that there's conflict or that there's war is when we try to fight against what is right and what is just because of Jesus. Jesus is that which is the ultimate standard. He is the ruler, and he is the king. And to rise up against that is when we have contention, and that's where... Satan begins to stir up that contention, even as his name says. <clears throat> so we know who Jesus is. But then we ask the question, to whom is Jesus? Jesus, if you want to go real quick over to John, chapter number 3, perhaps the most famous verse in all of the scripture. John chapter 3 and verse number 16 is probably everyone in here, even down to the little child, knows it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Jesus, he was sent into the world. That's who he was to. Jesus, before he came into the world, he is from everlasting to everlasting. He had an eternal existence in heaven, yet he came down to the earth for a particular mission. And that mission was to come to the world. That's who he was sent to. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Romans 5, 6 says, From where we get without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He came down for, not for the great people, but for the least of people. There's a story that's of a king and he has a banquet. 
And he calls many people to it, and the place where he used to sit is very obvious. It's the prominent place, the head of the table. Um, it's very decked out lavishly, and the most noble of the people come and they sit um, very close towards the front where the king would be, and then those who are lesser would sit further away. But everybody was surprised the king came in, and he sat at the other end of the table where the least of his nobles were, and the least of the people, people that were more, more base and more humble. See, Jesus didn't come to find the great people. He didn't come to find the people who were holy. He came to find the people that were unrighteous. He came to find the ungodly. He came to find the sinners. In fact, the accusation that the Pharisees laid against Jesus in Matthew eleven nineteen was that he was a friend of publicans and sinners, publican and a tax collector. Among his disciples, he had a tax collector, someone who was considered a traitor to their people. He had a fisherman, someone who wasn't exactly considered you know, most noble, very base and low position. He's friends with uh, Simon the Zealot, someone who was even trying to work insurrection against the Roman government. Jesus didn't come to find the high and the mighty. Jesus didn't come to find the Pharisees and the people who were thought they were holy according to law. He came to find the people that knew that they needed a savior. And the parable he gives of the Pharisee and the publican that go to pray, who was the, that went away justified, it was the man that said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's who Jesus came for. He didn't come to find us sitting in you know, a church acting churchy. He came to find us in the state that we were born in, born into Adam's sin, and born into that nature that we couldn't help ourselves from. And that's who he came for. Although you may have grown up and never done the most unrighteous, unholy things that we think of culturally, yet we're just as much sinful and just as much ungodly as you know, even the worst of the people has ever been. And that's who Jesus came for. There's no qualification that you need to come to Jesus. You only need to be a humankind that was born into born to sin. And if you recognize that condition and call on him in faith, he came for you. So we know who Jesus is. We know to whom he is. So let me ask the question, well, well, why is Jesus? And that's very similar to the question we just asked. In Luke 19.10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his purpose statement. He came to seek. He came to save. He gives the parables of the lost sheep. He came to seek somebody out. He came to find the one individual. And we say that one earthly reason, right? That song, that one earthly reason was me. He came for me. He came for each individual person. And we came to find that which was lost. See, we weren't already found. We were in a lost condition. But Jesus found us. And because of that, we have salvation. We look at... Okay, what was the condition that mankind was in? Romans 5, 12 through 18 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Jesus coming was necessary because of man's failure. The work that Adam did and the sin that he committed in the garden when he transgressed against God's commandment caused death to come upon all men. And because of that sin, we therefore have death. James 1 says, And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There was lust of the eyes, the pride of life that Adam and Eve had in the garden. They took of that fruit. And that lust led to sin, and that sin ultimately led to death. So we see sin and death are pictured together. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. Jesus came and he was born miraculously, right? He didn't have the, sin of curse upon, uh, the sin, curse of sin upon him, 
he still took a punishment for that sin. And in resurrecting, well, the resurrection is so important is because it shows that Jesus conquered death, and in conquering death, it proves that he conquered sin. Just like the man who was sick of the palsy was let down, and Jesus said, I say, your sins be forgiven thee. He said that, and then he proved that he had the power to forgive sins when he said, rise up and walk. See, Jesus has the power to cure the infirmities of the curse that are upon us, and then because he showed he had the power over death, then he says, okay, now you have proof that I have the power over sin, and you just simply place faith in the resurrection of Christ. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if the dead rise not. For if, ye be, uh, for if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so crucial to the Christian faith, and that's why he came. You know, you see in the Christmas song, he was born to die upon Calvary. But not only was he born to die, he was born to resurrect. See, no man took Jesus' life from him. He said, no man take my life from me. I lay it down of myself. And then I have power to take it up again. And Jesus' power to take it up again, he proved, I have victory over death, and I have victory over sin. And that was his mission, why he came. We know who he is. We know to whom he is. We know why he is. So we ask the question, then, where is Jesus? So Jesus, he is at the right hand of God. Acts 756 says, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Matthew 26, 64, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting upon the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark 16, 19, So then after they had spoken unto him, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And many other such verses where we see that Jesus' position is sitting at the right hand of God. That's where he is exactly right now. But not only does he sit upon the right hand of God, but he also has a work that he's doing in heaven. John 14, 1 through 3, Bible says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, the, <clears throat> the false doctrine of deism believes that God, he created the world, and he spun it like a clock, and then released it, and then had no more involvement in the world. Yet Jesus, he's very contrary to that. He came and he had involvement. He had a very explicit involvement in the world through his incarnation, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, which is what the gospel is. But beyond that, he's, he's not done doing stuff. He's still got a home that he's preparing in for us so that one day we can live with him in eternity. And he's doing so from the position of being seated at the right hand of God the Father. Not only that, but as we mentioned earlier during the time of prayer, he is in the midst of assembled believers. Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. See, church is to be done in Jesus' name. It's not to be done just for culture or just for the sake of the show of it, but it is done in Jesus' name. First uh, John says, we ask, these, we ask things in Jesus' name. Jesus said, Whatsoever things ye ask in my name, the Father giveth you. And we are to be assembled together in Jesus' name. And then we preach Jesus' book, the Holy Scripture. <clears throat> Everything in, that is revolved around church is for Jesus, and it's in his name. And we're gathered together here today, and we find that where is Jesus? He's, he's here together in our midst. He's up in heaven preparing a place for us, and he's seated at the hand of the Father. So you know why Jesus is. We know where Jesus is. But then we ask the question for the historian, when is Jesus? So the first thing that comes to mind is we think Jesus in his incarnation 2,000 years ago. You know, born just a couple years B.C., because our calendar's a little off. Um, but what we see is John, Jesus said of himself in John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. See, Jesus as being part of the Godhead, he has eternality of God. Jesus is the same yesterday, the same today, and the same forever. 
Um, Jesus never began to be. He will never cease to exist. We can never look at a certain point in time and say, this is when Jesus began. We can look back and say, this is when he was born on the earth. But that's not when Jesus began. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, that doesn't mean he was at that time. It means that he still is today. So Jesus, as part of the Godhead, expresses what God says in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. See, God, Jesus, as part of God, he inhabits eternity. He is forever. There is never a time we can say that Jesus is not. He is equally here today as he is in the future. He is equally at his coming as he is um, in eternity past, because Jesus has always been. And as part of God, he has that same eternality that God the Father has. He is in the past, the present, and the future. Revelation 1.8 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. There is never a time we can say that Jesus is not. There's never a place that we can say that Jesus is not, because Jesus is God. He is everywhere, and he is <clears throat> um, involved in all things, and he is at all times, because he is God. So we ask the question, how is Jesus? Not the question as so much as, hey, how are you doing? But how is this possible? How is Jesus? And the answer to that is the Holy Ghost. And that's why you know, one of that song we sang earlier, Come Holy Spirit, it's of such important power because the Holy Spirit's role that he's had throughout the world. See, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Ghost. Luke 1, 31 35 says, And he shall reign over the house of his father Jacob, for, house of Jacob, excuse me, forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which is born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Because Jesus was not born of a human father, but he was born of the Holy Spirit and of God the Father. Therefore, he is not placed under the same curse of sin. Therefore, when Jesus went into the holy place with the sacrifice in heaven, he didn't come as a man having to sacrifice for himself. The Old Testament priests, the Levites, they would have to go in and first offer for themselves, and then offer for the sins of the people. When Jesus came, he had no sin, he had no sin nature. He took upon him the curse of sin, took upon him the curse of death, and he overcame it, and he proved that he had power over that curse. So Jesus, when he came to offer himself, he didn't come as any other man. We have not a high priest who is, we have a high priest not, who's touched the feelings of the infirmities like we were, but yet was, what, without sin. So because Jesus was born of the Holy Ghost, he therefore had no sin, which is what makes him the only person that was ever able to keep the law of God perfectly intact the entire way through. James says, though you should keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of all. Just like a chain, if you break one single link, the whole thing falls apart. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Yet Jesus was equally strong in every link, and he upheld the entire law of God because he was not under the curse of sin. Uh, because of the Holy Spirit, he is testified of. In John 15, 26, But when the Comforter has come, who I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Holy Ghost works in the lives of both the believers and of those who are lost when he convicts them of their need for salvation. When the word of God is presented, it's quick and it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-eared sword, and it pierces, what, to the dividing of the sunder of the soul and spirit. And the Holy Ghost will work. God said his word will not return void. And when the Holy Spirit works, he convicts the heart of the person who's not saved, saying, you need me, you need Jesus, and he testifies of Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't testify of himself, but he points and says, this is Jesus. This is the one that you need that can take away, the, that can take away your sin, that can change your life. The Holy Spirit also works in the lives of the believers. As we hear the word of God, it convicts us, it works at us, and we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, um, showing us that we have indeed accepted Christ as a Savior. For 1 John 4.13 says, Hereby know that we are in him, that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. Because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, that is proof to us that we are indeed saved. We need not doubt our salvation because we have the Holy Spirit. 
we receive conviction from the word of God of our sin and we, we cannot stray from the Lord um, without the discomfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's testimony to us that we are saved. When we know that we have the Holy Spirit in us working us and convicting of us of our sin, that is proof to us that we are saved. The Holy Spirit is our proof of salvation. So we know how is Jesus, we know why is Jesus, we know when, we know where. But ultimately the question comes down to tonight, what is Jesus? And one of the most crucial points of the Christian faith and doctrine is we answer that he is the word. First uh, John 1, 14 says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. First John 5, 7 as well, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. First John 5, 7. Jesus being the word of God has far-reaching implications more than we could ever imagine. Because God is a trinity, there are three parts. And Jesus is represented there in 1 John 5, 7 as the word. Um, in other faiths, such as um, in the Islamic faith, they believe that God is not a trinity. They believe that he's just one. They call that the doctrine of the Tawhid. They believe that if God is one, therefore his attributes are external to himself, and they did not ever exist with God. So they believe that as their God existed, it wasn't in his nature to speak, or it wasn't in his nature to love. And the Islamic doctrine breaks down because these concepts that are so crucially a part of humanity couldn't have ever existed in what they believe is God. Yet we look at our God and we see that through eternity past, it was his very nature to speak. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says our God is a speaking God. It is in his very nature to speak and to utter. That's not an exact quote, but a paraphrase. Because the point is that God in his very nature is a speaking God. And when he created the world, what did he do? He spoke. In the beginning was the word... <clears throat> Right? We, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. See, Jesus as the word, he is the one by whom creation was made. Um, in <clears throat> Hebrews 1, 2, hath in these last days, talking about Jesus, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. And we look at the Genesis account of creation. Well, it wasn't that God did. He spoke the world into existence. Mankind, that only piece that he formed by his hand, but yet mankind was formed by the dust of the ground, the Lord spoke. Everything that exists is because of the very word of God. We cannot look around and experience anything with our senses without taking in everything that is entirely created by the word of God. And Jesus, he was the incarnate word, yet left us today is the written word. Although we do not have Jesus standing before us that we can look at, we do have the written word that's left for us to guide us. See, the Bible is not everything that Jesus is, but it's everything that we need to know about him. <clears throat> so Jesus is the word. By him, creation was formed. Beyond that, he's also all that our life should be. Paul confessed in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So what was Jesus to Paul? He was, he was everything to him. There was nothing that Paul said that he needed that was beyond Jesus Christ. Jesus said, what are, or, you know, what are the basic needs of humanity? Uh, we might say we need food, we need shelter, and we need clothing. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I'll provide you, you know, don't toil about what you're going to eat or what you're going to put on, because your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. And Jesus provides those earthly things that we need, and included in that, he didn't say that you need shelter, he just said that you needed food and that you needed clothing. And those things God has promised to provide but we, never, we don't seek after those things. We don't put those as our priority. We put Jesus as our priority. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus should be our life. He is to be everything to us. We lock up our houses and we think, you know, we, we hope nobody breaks in. Some of us, you know, if we lived in a, live in a more shady neighborhood, we're always concerned as we walk out, is somebody going you know, to break in while I'm gone or something? But if we, we look inside our house, what is it that we're, that we're scared to lose? What is it that's 
something to us that's part of creation that we're holding as what we need. To Paul, as he sat in a prison there in the Philippians, he said, to me, to live is Christ. There's nothing that I'm needing. There's nothing that I have. There's nothing that's important to me besides Christ. And to die, it's gain. All the things that Paul had in life, he counted them as lost for the cause of Christ because Christ was everything to him. One hymn writer put it, Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one has loved me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Jesus is to be absolutely everything to us. We look around and all we see is that which was created by the word of God. We come to church and we have preached to us the word of God. And our life is to be about the one who is incarnate, the incarnate word of God who lived upon the earth. So that is what Jesus is. He is the word of God and he is to be everything to us. So when we conclude, we ask, okay, well, what is Jesus? We could answer a lot of things, but Jesus is more than we can describe. In the book of John, chapter 21, verse 25, John concluded his gospel by saying, Jesus did many, many other things, of which, if we were to write, I suppose the world could not contain the books that should be written. And that's just of Jesus' lifespan of 33 and a half years. The world couldn't contain how it is. There's a limitation on size and space and on our understanding to describe everything that Jesus is. So suffice it to say, we don't know everything that Jesus is, but all that we need to know between the little, between those little pieces of leather, right? Everything that's on those pages, that's everything that we need to know about Jesus, and it's given to us in God's word. <clears throat> so for all the things that Jesus is, probably no other more precious and dear thing to the Christian who's already saved that could be, could be said than he is my friend. S.M. Lockridge preached a, a message a long time ago entitled My King, in which he described Jesus as the great king he was the one who was ruling. It was very poetic, very beautiful sermon. But he would ask periodically through the sermon, that's my king. Do you know him? See, what I'd say to you today is, for all that Jesus is, that's my friend. And will we, as his ambassadors today, be so bold as to ask someone out on the street, do you know him? That's what I ask you tonight. What is Jesus? He's my friend. Do you know him? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. And even more precious to us tonight as Jesus is our friend. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. So the question comes to you today. We see what other men have said about Jesus. We, other men say he's just a prophet. Some people believe that he was even Elijah raised from the dead. But Jesus is more than just a man, so he's, he's more than just a who. So what is he? Yeah, the question lies today in your lap. If you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, who is he? Is he truly the Son of God? Is he who he truly claims to be? What is he to you? Is he just 
something that we talk about on Sunday, something we talk about on Wednesday, or is he all of your life? Is he everything that is important to you? So that when you find that Jesus is all you have, you realize that he's all that you need. Who do you say that Jesus is today? That is the great question by which you determine your eternity and you live your life. For me, Jesus is my Savior, and he is my friend. Do you know him? Let's go ahead and we'll close in prayer, and after that we'll have a time we can go over those prayers in the prayer list, and then you guys quietly dismiss yourselves as, as you're done. Dear Lord, thank you for the time to be together in your house tonight. Thank you once again for the freedom. It can't be overstated that those who have died in the battlefield and those who have been killed at the stake gave their lives so that we could be here tonight. We could sit comfortably, we could hear your word, and we could grow in you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Pray that your word will work effectually in our hearts, and we'd be open to the things that you'd have us to learn. Maybe for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.